You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. Hey, well, good morning, family. Oh, that was kind of disappointing, i got to be honest. Good morning, family. Hey, there you are. Good to see you. If this is your first time, welcome. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for... Uh, deciding to brave the rain and worship with us. If it is your very first time with us, we'd love to offer you a free gift this morning, a tumbler or a water bottle or a sippy cup. And if it's your first time with us, that is our gift to you. Uh, If you'd like more information about our church or there's something we could be praying about for you, there is a slip in the seat back in front of you. You can take that, fill it out, and then you can put it in the offering slot, which is right over there. So we do have candy company, as you found out very melodramatically. Uh, And that announcement, 6 to 8 this Friday, I would love to have you bring neighbors, friends, anybody. It's just a great chance to connect with our community. I also need help with booths, so I would just encourage you to uh, check that out. We also have Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes. A lot of you do that every year. We are doing it again. We'll have more information on what that is in the weeks to come. But if you want to know or you're just ready to grab your box, D, you are out there. You have the boxes. You can connect with her after the service. You know, at the start of this year, my wife and I decided to uh, eat differently. That was our New Year's resolution because over the pandemic, I had put on the COVID-19. I don't know if anybody else put on the COVID-19. I I put on the COVID-19, and it was time for a change. And, And I'm happy to say that for the most part, we've kept our resolution, and you know, I have learned something. Do do you know the key to changing your diet? Do you know what it is? It's lying to yourself. That's the key. If you can deceive yourself, you can start eating a new diet. What you need to do is just find healthy, fake versions of all the foods you like, and if you keep eating them for a few weeks, you will trick yourself into thinking that those are the foods you like. And so we started doing that, right? So instead of eating a lot of dairy, started drinking almond milk and oat milk. And I mean, before this year, I didn't even know an oat could be milked. Did you know that? You can milk an oat. And, uh, you know, at first it it wasn't that great. And now it's not that terrible. Um, And I no longer crave milk. And then instead of soda, right, you drink sparkling water, and man, it it is natural. That stuff is so natural. It's so natural that it's not even naturally flavored. It's naturally essenced. And I I didn't even know essenced was a word before this year, but it is, and uh, it's natural, and it's not that good. But, you know, you drink it for a few weeks, and then it's not that bad, and you can kind of fool yourself into thinking that uh, it's soda. We even found fake ranch dressing. And it's really good. It's so good, I would almost put it in my sparkling water. It is that, it is that good. I put that on everything. But it's interesting that humans have this superpower where we can deceive ourselves. We have the ability to trick ourselves into thinking in different ways. Into thinking we are doing one thing, eating one thing, when we're actually doing something else. That's amazing, isn't it? And you can use that superpower for good, or you can use it for evil. And according to James, the most dangerous form of self-deception is spiritual self-deception. It is possible, James says, to trick yourself spiritually. 
Now, in this room, there are some of you who don't follow Jesus, and you know you don't follow Jesus. And I'm so glad you're here this morning. But James says that there's another group of people, and this is very possible to be, where you think you are a genuine follower of Jesus. You even do things that look Jesus-y, and yet you're not a Christian at all. It's very possible to not be a follower of Jesus and think that you are. And so this is such a critical question for us to get right. What evidence demonstrates genuine belief? What does the fruit of my life look like if I genuinely believe in Jesus? And how can we deceive ourselves? How could I deceive myself into thinking that I'm a Christian when I'm really not? Family, these are questions we need to consider because regardless of whether you are investigating Jesus or whether you think you're a follower of Jesus or whether you really are a follower of Jesus, we are all prone to deceive ourselves and to substitute phony belief for real belief. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. What is the evidence of genuine faith? Well, today we're looking at the definitive passage on that subject. James 2, 14 through 26. If you've got a Bible, you can grab it, go to that passage now. If you want to understand the relationship between faith and action, between what's true of us inside and what will be produced outside, this is the passage. James 2. This is a passage about faith and works. James uses believe or faith 14 times. He uses works 12 times in this passage. Now, as you read this passage, you might infer that this passage is about two things. What are they? You got faith and works. Thank you. Someone talked to me. This isn't that fun when you don't talk back at me, okay? Like, please, talk back at me. So, you might infer that this passage is about two things. It's about faith over here and works over here, and that there are really two compartments to the Christian life. There's kind of faithy, private me and Jesus stuff over here, and then there's good work stuff over here, as if you could separate those two, and that's exactly not what James is saying. He is not saying that if you're faithy stuff over here, just add some works to your faith. No, he's trying to show us that faith and works are actually inseparable. And what he's arguing against is this idea that you could ever separate faith from works. Let's think about the context here. You might remember this. Last week, we looked at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, where James talks about the final judgment. He talks about when Jesus will return, and he says that at the judgment, mercy will triumph. And to paraphrase James' point, it's this, that at the judgment seat of Jesus, how will Christians be known? Well, those whose lives were characterized by deeds of mercy are the people who will be shown to be what? Genuine Christians. That's what it means for mercy to triumph over judgment. James says that Christians receive mercy, and then they do works that display mercy, and at the judgment seat of Christ, that's what will mark out Christ's followers, those who did acts of mercy. And now James is anticipating an objection his readers might have, saying, wait a minute, James, you said that, that all these works 
are going to be necessary at the judgment. Well, I thought this was about faith, not works, and that's exactly the objection we see in this passage. And, and you know, this is the, the JBV translation, okay? This is the Jeff Bruce version, okay? I'm just I'm trying to help you unpack this. Verse 18a, this is my translation. James says, but someone that's reading this will say that you, the person objecting, have faith, and I, James, have works. James says that deeds of mercy will characterize Christ's people at the judgment. And, and here's the response. Here's the objection. It goes something like this. Okay, James, listen, I get it. You think deeds of mercy are important. You have works. Look at you. You're just worky McWorkerson. Works, works, works. Good for you. But I have faith. I have my own personal private faith. I might not have your works, but I still have my own faith, James. And faith is what's necessary. Works aren't necessary, James. Only my personal faith is. Have you ever heard someone talk that way? And this is the fundamental problem that James is addressing. It's a kind of double-mindedness that says there's faith over here that are completely unrelated to works over here. And then in the second half of verse 18, James responds to that mentality. So verse 18a is the objection. Verse 18b, back to the English standard. This is no longer the Jeff Bruce version. Uh, Show me your faith apart from your works, James says. In other words, he's saying this. You think that there is a kind of faith that doesn't impact your life, show it to me. (laughs) You think that you can have some kind of internal faith that doesn't lead to works. What kind of faith is that? Show me what kind of faith doesn't lead to action. I'll wait. And then here's the point that James is making. I will show you my faith by what? My works. See, this person wanted to separate faith from works. James says they're inseparable because what we really believe will determine what? How we behave. There is always an outward manifestation, James says, of what we believe, and what we believe will inevitably be revealed in how we behave. See, it's not like you can have faith over here and then try hard to do a bunch of good works over here. James says it's more like this, that faith is like a tree. And the roots of our faith are in Jesus, but if we really believe in who Jesus is and what he has said and what has he promised, what's it going to impact? Everything we do. If it's genuine, it will impact the way we think and act and speak and change every aspect of our lives. If genuine faith is the root, then good works will be the fruit. And so rather than faith and works existing in these two separate worlds, they're actually inseparable. Now, if that's true, then a faith that doesn't produce any works is what? It's no faith at all. It's not real faith, which is exactly what James goes on to say. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Here's what James is saying. If you have the kind of faith that doesn't impact your life at all, what good is that faith? It didn't change anything about your life. What good is it? The implied answer is it's no good at all. It's not useful. And then he says, can that faith save him. Notice, James doesn't say, can faith save him? He says, can that faith, a dead, inanimate faith that doesn't impact your life at all, can that faith save someone? What's the implied answer? No. Why? Because it's not real faith. 
James goes on to describe it this way, that faith apart from works is dead. Uh, a faith, an intellectual agreement, an idea, oh yeah, I believe in God that doesn't change your life, it's dead, it's inanimate. James gives this example. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Isn't that a graphic example? You know, if you've ever seen a, a corpse, you think, well, it looks like the person. In a sense, it's the person, but what do we say when someone has died? That person is no longer there. The spirit, the animating principle of that person, they're not really there. And James says it is possible to have a faith that sort of looks like Christian faith and walks like Christian faith and talks like Christian faith, but the animating principle is not there. It's dead. Does that make sense? It's a, it's a corpse. It's a husk of the real thing. So the objector says, it's faith that's necessary, not works. James says, no, 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 faith that's genuine necessarily produces good works. It's the animating principle of life. So family, here's the question. What does faithful fruit, fruitful faith look like and what doesn't it look like, right? What evidence should I see in my life if I have genuine faith? I'm so glad you asked that because that's what I'm talking about. You guys ask such good questions, just to let you know. This is what we're talking about today. Faith bears fruit. Well, what kind of fruit does it bear? Let's talk about what it does not look like and then what it does look like. But before we jump in, let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, I, I pray, God, that this talk would not lead us to focus on ourselves and what we have to do, but on who you are and what you've done. Lord, faith is a response to you, so would you grow our confidence in you through this talk, and would the natural result be a changed life, that we would deepen our knowledge of your character and promises, and God, our lives would look different. Jesus, help me now. In your name, amen. So, what does faith not look like? What does it not look like? You know, some things are good things, they're necessary things, but they're not sufficient things. There are elements of faith that you need to be there, but just because they're there doesn't mean you have real faith. What do I mean? I mean three things. It's possible to say the right words and not have genuine faith. It's possible to think the right thoughts and not have genuine faith. It's possible to feel the right feelings and not have genuine faith. And James goes through each of these as examples of faith that's shallow. Apart from works, James says, each of these are actually deceptive fruit. Let's start with saying the right words. James says this, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? <laughs> what good is it? What's no good at all, right? James loves the rhetorical question, doesn't he? Here's what James is saying. Imagine as a, a Christian, you see someone on the street, and they're poorly clothed and they're hungry, right? Almost naked, dilapidated, starving. They need food. This isn't just anybody. This is someone in your faith family. This is a fellow Christian. And you see them, and what does the guy say? Be warmed and be filled. What does this person need? Warmth? Clothing? 
and food. They need to be filled. And, and this person goes, oh, God, this person has a need that needs to be met. I don't know how, God. I don't know how possible you could do that, but I pray, God, you would meet that need. See you later. That's what this person is doing. Be warm and be filled. See, it's not just that they're ignoring the need of their faith family. They're doing it in a religious way, aren't they? Be warmed and be filled is may God grant this need somehow, some way, would someone show up in the body of Christ to meet this need. You, ever, you realize that sometimes you're the answer to the prayer? You're the answer to the prayer. When, when that person comes along and they're in need, it's not, oh God, who could possibly do this? It's, oh God, thank you, I'm the answer to this person's prayer. Right? But, but faith, phony faith, instead gives religious sentiment where action was needed. It's just, I said the right thing, I gave the right answer, and, and therefore I hope God will meet your need. This is a danger for Christians. Let me tell you one way this is a danger. This is something I see, and, and, and hear me, if you are young, you need to pay attention to this, because this applies directly to you. I've talked to a lot of people and asked them, how do you know you're a Christian? And do you know one of the answers they give again and again and again that's the wrong answer? I'll say, how do you know you're a Christian? They'll say, when I was seven, I said the words, Jesus, come into my heart, and that's how I know I'm a Christian. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. I prayed a prayer, I said these words, and that's how I know that I believe in Jesus. Now, is there anything wrong with saying those words? No. In fact, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's fine. But those words aren't a magic trick that makes you a Christian. And this is what I've seen is people will then grow up and go to college and say, yeah, I'm a Christian because I guess I walked out at that summer camp or I guess I said that thing. It just doesn't impact my life. Then you're not a Christian. Faith is not... I prayed a prayer when I was seven. Faith is Jesus died for me 2,000 years ago and rose for me, and today I trust in him for my salvation and live like he's my Lord. That's faith. Do you see the difference? It's not just saying the right words. And the reality for any of you who are growing up in the church when you're young is you're going to have a day where you realize that you've inherited a faith, which is a beautiful thing, and now you have to make a decision to believe the faith you inherited. And that's not a bad thing, that's a normal thing. It's actually a good thing for you to go through. I remember it clear as day. I was walking down the street with my friend, wasn't a Christian, and it hit me like a Buick. Huh, if my parents were atheists, I'd probably be an atheist. If my parents were Hindus, I'd probably be a Hindu. My parents are Christians, and they're really good Christians too. They're, and, and so, I'm a Christian. Huh. Do I believe this because my parents do or because I do? That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. And what I would encourage you if you're younger is start wrestling with that now. Don't wait and assume because you prayed a prayer you're a Christian. Say, no, I have to make an intelligible decision to do this and wrestle. It's a good thing. And if your parents have done a good job discipling you, that's not going to be as difficult a process to go through. But it's a necessary thing. Faith is not just saying a magic formula. Does that make sense? It's your present living active trust in Jesus. Saying the right words. 
It's necessary. It's not sufficient. Second, thinking the right thoughts is necessary but not sufficient. You can think about this objector, right? He's saying, listen, James, you've got faith, uh, you got works, i got faith, but listen, I have the correct understanding of God. I know who God is. I've read my Bible. And listen to how James responds. You believe that God is one you do well. Sarcasm. You didn't detect that? You do well. Good job. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you see the objection? See, in the objector's mind, faith is just holding the right opinions about God, having the correct theology about God. And for Jews, correct theology was believing that God is one, right? That's the, the foundational belief of Judaism, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James is writing to very Jewish Christians. This is foundational. We believe that Yahweh is the Lord. There's one God. We still believe that. We are solid theologically. What does James say? Good job. Golf clap, right? You do well. You know who else believes that? Satan. Satan has good theology in one sense. They know who God is, and it terrifies them. Doesn't make them devoted to God. They're still mortal enemies of God. See, James is using an extreme example to prove that just thinking the right thoughts isn't real faith. That you can have the correct beliefs in your head, and all that gets you is demonic faith. That's a sobering thing, isn't it? You know, you read through the Gospels, and Jesus will encounter demonized people, and sometimes the demon will speak. And isn't it weird that the demons always get the theology question right? Like every time, they're like, oh, that's Jesus. He's the Holy One of God. He's the Messiah. They, they know who Jesus is. They just reject his lordship, and they're his enemies. This is a very dangerous and deceptive form of false fruit, and it's this, that because I have the correct theology and the correct opinions, then I have a strong faith in Jesus. And do you know how I know this is dangerous? Because I went to seminary. Seriously. There's a reason they joke about seminary being cemetery and the place where your faith actually goes to die, and here's why. I met so many people who were brilliant could argue the faith backwards and forwards, knew their Bible better than anyone, and they made a shipwreck of their faith. They walked away from the faith. Do you know why? Because at some point, they'd made this little substitution in their mind, and they thought that the goal of the Christian life was to win arguments and master knowledge and master this book like it's an artifact rather than be mastered by this book and live under its authority. That's a dangerous place to be. It's a subtle error at first, but, but let me tell you, if you're in an academic study where all you're doing is learning and never obeying, you can think the goal is just to be smarter than everyone and not to grow in holiness. I made that error. I went to Bible school, and my Bible knowledge grew, and my love shrank. And I thought the goal of life is to correct everyone's wrong opinions. And I was a delight to be around, let me tell you. I was just a lovely person. I remember talking to this, this girl who was a Bible major too. We were hanging out. She goes, Jeff, I thought you'd be more arrogant than this. Um, you're not as arrogant as you thought you were. Which, yeah, thank you for that compliment, right? So, thanks so much. 
But, but see, it is possible to have perfect beliefs about Jesus and have them not transform your heart at all because you think that, oh, I understand it. I've mastered the knowledge. That's it. That's not faith. That's agreement with correct theological opinions. Now, some people hear that and go, yeah, Jeff, man, doctrine's good, but it's not everything. We need to feel, right? There's thinkers in the room, and then there's feelers. We need passion for God and emotions for God. And James goes, hold on. I want to talk to you too if you're a feeler, because what does he say here about feeling the right feelings? Even the demons believe, and what do they do? They shudder. Do you see what he's saying? Demons have an emotional response to their theology. Shuddering implies trembling violently, uncontrollable shaking. They know who God is. It's an accurate understanding. And they actually have a profound emotional reaction to God. And so isn't that amazing that you could have a proper knowledge of God? And in a sense, you could have an emotional response to God. And does a demon have faith? No. Mortal enemies of God. See, this is the, the, the danger. The, the first one was sort of intellectualism. That's thinking. This one is emotionalism. And thinking that genuine faith is demonstrated by the depth of my emotional experience with God. And that if I just have deep emotions and feelings, then that's proof that I really love God. Now, are emotions bad? No. Emotions are wonderful. In fact, we should have affections, which are kind of like deep-seated emotions toward God. But that's not necessarily an indicator that you really are trusting in God. This is one of, actually, I think the dangers of worship is that we forget why we worship, is that we don't worship worship. Who do we worship? God. It's fundamentally an act of obedience. It's not, I love having an emotional experience and that's why I love worship. No, regardless of how I feel, you worship because who is worthy? God. And one of the ways you know you're worshiping worship is that you're not focused on what God deserves, but what you think of the worship. I heard one pastor say one time, one of the worst questions to ask is, what did you think of the worship? Think about it. It's like, kind of like I was the audience for the worship, and I, I wasn't moved by the worship. Who, the only question that matters is, is what? What does God think of the worship? What did God think of the worship? Regardless of how I feel, it's an act of obedience where I am placing myself under his authority. But if you ground that, not in the character of God, but in your emotions, then your devotion to God just ebbs and flows with what? Your emotion. I saw this all the time growing up. It's just summer camp Christianity, right? And one week of the year, kids would be crying their eyes out about how much they love Jesus, and then they leave camp, and it's like, bye, Jesus, see you next year when I come to camp. So I can have this emotional experience again. That's emotionalism. That's not faith. It's not faith. Faith is not merely saying the right things, thinking the right thoughts, or feeling the right feelings. Those are necessary components. They can be part of genuine faith, but they aren't sufficient because all of those things can be there and it doesn't lead to what? A changed life. All of those things can be there, and it doesn't impact your day-to-day -day behavior. And so at this point, I hope you're like, okay, Jeff, can you just tell me what it is? 
What is the evidence of genuine faith? Well, here's James' point here. The essence of faith, and if you're a note taker, write this down. The essence of faith is this. It's taking God at his word. The essence of faith is taking God at his word. And if you take God as your, at his word, that's the root. Do you know what the fruit's going to be? Obedience. Obedience. If you believe God is who he says he is and that his promises are true, you'll do what he says because you take him at his word. And that's what James goes on to say and demonstrate from two Old Testament examples, Abraham and Rahab. They could not be any more different, and yet they both had faith because they took God at his word and lived accordingly. Let's start with Abraham. James says this, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Don't you love James? He's so gentle. You idiot. Do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called, I don't have this up there, uh, and he was called a friend of God. And then he goes on to say, you can go to the next slide, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, we need to pause there. James says, look at Abraham's life. Abraham was justified by works. He offered up Isaac. So a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. And before we get to the point, there's a kind of a record scratch here, right? Justified by works and not faith alone. That does not sound right. Wait, that sounds wrong. In fact, that sounds like the exact opposite of what Paul says, right? What does Paul say? We hold that a person is justified by what? Faith apart from works. In fact, that's exactly what he says. See, I got a verse to prove it. It's right up there. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And Paul doesn't say that like in one place. He says it again and again and again, that we are declared righteous in God's sight by faith, not by works of the law. And here James seems to say just the opposite. What's fascinating is this. Paul proves his point about justification from the example of Abraham, Romans 4. James proves his point about justification from the example of Abraham. Paul says, look at Genesis 15. Abraham says, look at, Gen I mean, James says, look at Genesis 22. Now, we read that, we go, oh, no. Is this a Bible fight? Right? Like, are James and Paul fighting with each other? Because if that's the case, we've got a big problem, right? It's like we're kids, and oh, no, mom and dad are fighting. What side do we pick, right? This is a lose-lose. Well, thankfully, we don't need to pick which apostle we agree with on this issue. And that's what I hope to show you here. We've got to do a little Bible study here to make this clear, though, okay? We know that Paul and James agree about salvation. You know why? Paul says so in Galatians 2. He met James. We saw things the same way. Acts 15, Luke says the same things. Paul and James met. They talked about it. They did a fist pound. They were good about justification and salvation. So if that's the case, how do we put these two things together? And here's our Bible study lesson for the morning, okay? Here's the Bible study lesson. 
There's a very important distinction we need to make when we're studying the Bible, and it's a distinction between words and concepts. Words and concepts. The same words can be used to convey different concepts. Does that make sense? You can have the same word, completely different meaning, because words mean what they mean based on the context they're used in. So let me give you an example. The sentence, Mary had a little lamb. What does that mean? Well, it depends on the context, right? If I say Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow, I'm talking about what? A nursery rhyme, right? What if we all were back here on Christmas Eve and I, I was preaching a sermon about Jesus and I said Jesus came to earth and, and, and then the virgin gave birth and Mary had a little lamb? Right? It's a different Mary. It's a different had. It's a different little lamb. What if I gave up and gave an illustration? It was like, hey, you know, Kashel and I went out with our friend Mary on Friday night. It was great. Went to that new Greek place, and, and Mary had a little lamb. Right? Different Mary, different had, different little lamb. What if, uh, you know, what if I had a friend Mary who got involved in, in, in you know, street life and, and, and swindling people and, you know, she started selling fake watches to people and a little innocent kid came up and bought one and, and then Mary had a little, la- that's, that's stretching it, okay, that's pushing it. But here's the point, words mean what they mean because of the context they're used in. Same words, completely different meaning and that's what's going on here. James and Paul are talking with the same words, but the concepts are different. They mean different things. So, for example, when Paul is talking about works, he is talking about things we do before we know Jesus. And in those passages, it's things we do to try to earn a status with God. That's what he's talking about. Works to do to earn favor with God, he says you can't do it. James's works, are they pre-conversion? No, they're post-conversion. These are works done after someone has a relationship with God. They're actually works that flow from what? Faith. So these are different works. Paul's works are the works of the law, Old Testament laws to keep to appear righteous before God. James' works are really just the outworking of faith. They're the outward manifestation of faith. They're not works apart from faith. They're just the evidence of faith. When Paul says justified, he's talking about God's initial declaration of righteousness. We come to Christ, we throw ourselves on Him, we say, there's nothing I can do to earn a status with God. God's gavel falls. What does he say? Because of Jesus' death, you are justified, acquitted, innocent. That's not what James is talking about here. He's talking about the eventual confirmation of righteousness. He's saying that a believer will be vindicated, their faith will be vindicated by the way they live, and their righteous acts display what? The verdict that they have been justified. It's a different thing. Importantly, when Paul talks about faith alone, what does he mean? He's talking about a genuine dependence on Jesus and not works for salvation. When James talks about faith alone in verse 24, what is he talking about? Dead faith. Faith that doesn't produce works, faith that is inanimate, faith that isn't faith at all. Do you see why words and concepts matter? You can use similar words, but mean very different things. Now, what does this mean for us? What it means is this, that if we have genuine faith in Jesus, 
Obedience will be the result. How do you see that in the life of Abraham? Just think about the life of Abraham for a second and the way this plays out. Do you remember what God says to Abraham in Genesis 15? He, he calls Abraham to himself and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a family. In fact, I'm going to give you a huge family. In fact, look up at the stars, Abraham, and count them, which he couldn't do, but that's how big your family's going to be. And what does the text say? That's verse 5, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So right at that moment, what does Abraham do? He says, okay, God said it. I believe it. And he's righteous. He's righteous even though he's a pagan, he's ungodly, he hasn't done anything to earn that status. He believes it, and it's counted to him as righteousness. Now, there's a problem, though, with believing that, isn't there? God says, I'm going to give you a big family. Who can't have any family? Abraham. He can't have kids. You know who else can't have kids? His wife, Sarah. They're both barren. They can't have kids. That's a huge problem, right? And so Abraham's whole life is waiting for God to come through on this promise to give them a kid, isn't it? Now, did Abraham believe perfectly? Come on, Abraham? He's awful at trusting God. He's terrible, right? He does the whole Hagar plan B thing at one point to get a kid his own way. God's like, come back. No, 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 I'm going to give you a kid. Finally, right, God gives them the child of promise, gives them Isaac. He comes through on his promise. Abraham kept returning to God, kept trusting him. God makes good on his promise. They get this kid. And then towards the end of Abraham's life, what does God say? He says, offer your son to me as a sacrifice. Now, at that point in Abraham's life, his faith had been developed, it had been matured, he had seen God do impossible things for him time and again, and so what does he do? He's willing to offer his son. Why? Hebrews 11 says, because he believed that God could raise him from the dead. He trusted that God has already said, he's going to give me a family, it's got to come through Isaac. So whatever this means, it can't mean that this is the last word for Isaac. Now, what did that show? It was the perfection of his faith that God took, that Abraham took God at his word to that extent. He trusted him that he would do what he said. And Abraham's faith was vindicated. So what do you learn there about the essence of faith? What is it? It's just taking God at his word. And eventually, what would it be displayed in? Action. See, Genesis 15 Genesis 15, Abraham is declared righteous by taking God at his word. Genesis 22, decades later, Abraham is displayed righteous by taking God at his word. Do you see that? Faith, action, all of it rooted in the promise of God. That's always what faith looks like. Because James goes on to say this, Rahab. Rahab couldn't be any more different than Abraham. Abraham is like the Jew to end all Jews. He's the father of Jews. Rahab is a Gentile. She's a non-Jew. Abraham's a man. Rahab's a woman. Rahab's a prostitute, right? And what happens with Rahab in Joshua 2? The Israelites are coming in to conquer the land, and they send spies into Jericho, and Rahab hides the spies. And do you remember why she hides God's people? She says, I've heard about your God. This Gentile woman says, that he is God above all gods, Lord above all lords. We know what he did in the Exodus in Egypt. We've heard about him, and so I want to be on his team because <laughs> there's no God higher. And so what? She takes God at his word, sees what he does, and then she responds in faith 
by aligning herself with God's people. Same exact thing. Take God at his word, see what he does. Actions correspond. That is always how faith works. So here's the principle, okay? And then we're done. I know this is theology lesson, but it's important for us to get this right. The principle is this. Faith is taking God at his word, and if we take God at his word, we will act in accordance with it. What you actually believe determines how you actually behave, period, for all of us. Your behavior is a response to your most deep-seated beliefs all the time. And if you see who the God of the Bible is and take him at his word, you will live differently. And so how do you know if you have genuine faith? Here's a great question to ask. Is there anything in my life that I do simply in response to God's word? Is there anything in my life that I do just because God says it and I know who he is, so I'm going to live accordingly? That is the index of faith. See, faith isn't just wishful thinking. Faith is a response to what? To the reality of who God is. And so as you think about your life, is there something you do? Is there a change you've made just because God promises or God commands? That's how you know if you're believing in the God of the Bible. So let me give you an example. Let's make this real concrete. Um, I... In my prayer life, I've realized something, that, that my prayer lacks faith. And do you know how I know that? I'm really vague in my prayer. Do you ever pray vague prayers? My prayers are like, God, I just pray that thing, and you know that thing, that it would work out, and I don't know what it means for it to work out, but just, God, make that work out, right? I used to pray that way as a kid, like, God, just peace, and everybody in the world know Jesus, amen, right? Just cover all my bases. And what I realized is I wasn't praying like the God of the Bible really exists. Because in Scripture, there are huge promises related to prayer. And that God is an attentive Father and wants to answer our prayers. And as we'll see in James 4, you have not because you ask not. And so I thought, wow, if I really believed that, I would pray much more specifically. And then I was reading through the Psalms in my own devotional life, and I'm like, man, David is like uncomfortably specific in the things he's praying for. Like, I need deliverance from these enemies right now for this reason. And I'm like, I don't pray that way. And so I thought, okay, if I take God at his word, how am I going to pray? I'm going to get granular and specific about what I want God to do, and I'm going to pray that way. Does that make sense? And so I did. In fact, I thought, I'm going to write down what I want God to do today. And I'm like, God, there are two decisions I need, I need made today. I can't keep waiting on these. God, I need to know if I do A or B. I think those are my options. I was writing all this down. But God, if you've got a C, you've got to show it to me. And you know what happened that day? Meeting number one in the afternoon, answer the first question. Clear what to do. Meeting number two, answer the second question. Clear what to do. That's what it means to take God on his word and live accordingly. So ask yourself, especially as you're reading the Bible, what practically would I do today if I believed this, and how would I, my life look different? And, and family, I'll end on this because it's the point. You know, we read a passage like this, and I think this is the concern that I have, is you would hear about faith and works, and you know what you would do? You'd focus on yourself. You think, I gotta work harder. I gotta trust more. And if you've ever done that, what do you do? You start beating yourself up, right? Because you see all the areas where I could do more for Jesus, I could trust Jesus more, and you just focus on all the areas you fall short. But what is faith? Is faith looking at yourself? 
No, faith is looking at who? Character of God. Faith is a response to the character and work of God as revealed in his word in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the way you grow in faith is not by trying harder. What is it? It's looking at the character of God and looking and looking and looking until you see how good, gracious, great, and glorious he is in Jesus. And as you gaze upon him, do you know what happens? Your faith grows. As you look at him on the cross, your faith grows, and you become more confident in your love. And do you know what happens? It's not so much that you focus on doing works. It's just that the works happen because of the God you're looking at. It's the natural result of your life. And so my plea to you this morning, family, is don't go think about all the works you need to do. Think about the character of God. Think about who he is, and then ask, if I really believe that kind of God existed, how am I going to live today? And I promise you, if you look at him in his word, faith comes by hearing, hearing the word, and look at the goodness of Jesus in the gospel, your life will start to change. And the fruit will resemble the root. Let's pray. So, Father, we thank you for this. And, and Lord, anytime I give us a talk like this, I, my prayer is that you would comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Lord, that some of us are weighed down with guilt or shame because we failed, and Lord, I pray you'd comfort them with your gospel mercy. And Lord, my fear, though, is that other people are comfortable in their complacency, and they're living on assumed Christianity rather than lived Christianity, and I pray you would afflict them in their unbelief, and you would draw them to a place of repentance, Lord. And we know from your word that repentance is just turning away from the lies and turning toward your truth. And when we turn there and when we fix our eyes on you, Jesus, and when our lives look like those who are looking at you. Ask it for your sake. Amen.